I want to begin by sharing a Puritan quote. A Puritan author once wrote, The study of Jesus Christ is the noblest subject that ever a soul spent itself upon. The angels stoop to look into this abyss. The truths discovered in Christ are the secrets that from eternity lay hid in the bosom of God. Studying Christ stamps a heavenly glory upon the contemplating soul. How little do we know of Christ in comparison with what we might have known. Oh, how much time is spent in other studies and worldly employment, but how little in the search and study of Jesus Christ. Oh, then separate, devote, and wholly give yourself, your time, and your strength to this most sweet transcendent study. What a powerful exhortation for us to consider as we step back into the Gospel of Mark and continue our study of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those who haven't been with us on the journey, we welcome you. Jesus Christ is the theme of the Gospel of Mark, and he's a theme in a specific way. He is Jesus the servant. And we've witnessed Jesus serving tirelessly and ministering to thousands upon thousands of people in the opening 10 chapters as he continues to preach the gospel. And this was the primary ministry focus and the main reason for which he came. And he stated this in Mark 1, 38 and 39, which says, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues and throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out demons. And the ensuing chapters, as we have seen, provide numerous accounts of Jesus, the servant, serving people by preaching the gospel, performing miracles, and making disciples. And this drives at the very core, the very essence of who Jesus Christ is. And when he gets to Mark 10.45, Jesus will share the infamous verse of Mark's gospel account when he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Servanthood describes the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And as a point of application, before we even begin, before we even dive into our study this morning, we can consider how we might have a greater opportunity to serve others, right? This is, this is life as a follower of Christ. How we have the opportunity to serve our families at home. How we have the opportunity to serve our church family members in the church. And as we look to Jesus Christ's example, how he served the lost and those outside of the church. And this is a great theme for 2017. What opportunities might the Lord, Lord open up for, for you to serve in a greater capacity, to, to minister to your fellow care group members, to serve here in the church, to serve those in your workplace who don't know him. And oh, it's, it's just staggering when you consider all those that are not walking with the Lord. It's overwhelming. And they're there. The fields are indeed white with harvest. What joys and blessings will you and I discover this year as we seek 
to lay down our lives even more for the sake of others. Another consideration is what Jesus focused on while serving others. In in a nutshell, he focused on gospel ministry while making disciples. And it wasn't easy. As we've already learned in Mark, the call to discipleship involves a cost of discipleship. Men had to leave their boats and their fishing nets behind, just as Peter, James, and John did. Matthew, Levi, had to leave his tax collection business and leave it all behind for the sake of following Christ. Not everyone is ready to surrender their allegiance to serving this world and serving self. And today we'll see Jesus witness to such a person in a passage that is recorded in all three synoptic gospels. In Matthew's account, he describes the person that approaches Jesus as young. In Luke's account, he describes the person that approaches him as a ruler. And hence we have the name of the story, the rich young ruler. This rich young ruler will ask one of the most important questions that a person can ever ask, which serves as the title of our message in your notes this morning. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Certainly he's asking the right person. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. John 17, 4 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. 1 John 1, 2 even describes Jesus as the eternal life. How will Jesus serve this man? How will he answer this most profound question? How would you answer this question? If someone were to come up to you and, and ask you, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Would your answer reflect what Jesus shares? Or perhaps it might differ. Let's begin by reading Mark 10, 17-22 together. And here's what it says in the New American Standard. <clears throat> Verse 17. As he, Jesus, was setting out on a journey... A man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property." Well, let's get a little context here before we jump right in. The rich man in our present story with his possessions and social status is a stark contrast to the simplicity of children in the previous story. The last time we were in Mark 10, Jesus used children as an object lesson to teach his disciples and help them to see and understand the humility and absolute dependency that a sinner must have to enter the kingdom of God. 
in the same way that a child is completely and utterly dependent upon someone to provide for their physical needs, a person must see their desperate need for God's help spiritually to enter the kingdom of God. And this man is already in deep spiritual trouble because his opening question in verse 17 doesn't even include God in the equation, does it? He says, good teacher, what shall I or what must I, depending on your translation, do to inherit or obtain eternal life? In the parallel account in Matthew, it adds the words good thing. As Matthew records him saying, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He is completely man-centered in his thinking, and Jesus knows it. And this man, like so many in the world throughout history, is caught up in what he must do, not what he must believe. And thus, we're going to see three vital lessons from our Lord's interaction with the rich young ruler so that a person understands what is necessary to inherit eternal life. And Jesus could have just given him a a direct answer, couldn't he have? What, What is necessary? Jesus could have said, I'm the Messiah. Believe completely in me and you'll have eternal life. But he didn't. Why? Because it's for our benefit just as much as it is for the, the, the rich man. It's for the benefit of all the followers of Jesus Christ that they would understand the vital lessons within our Lord's answer. The first lesson is so that you and I recognize that only God is good. The second lesson is so that you and I confess that we're lawbreakers. And the third is so that you and I surrender our allegiance to self and this world and follow Christ completely. These are listed in your outline, in in your bulletin, so let's tackle them one at a time. The first vital lesson is to recognize that only God is good. Right out of the gate, the rich young ruler addresses Jesus, good teacher, and this already lets Jesus know where his heart's at. It already lets him know that he's been indoctrinated with a pharisaical view of man. He, he, he sees an unbiblical or unlawful anthropology. The only time that mankind is deemed good in the pre-fall state back in Genesis is back in Genesis chapter 1, before sin entered the heart of man. In fact, God even referred to his creation of man as very good, right? We recall that in Genesis chapter 1. But after the fall, however, we see a different story, a completely different anthropology. The fall of mankind into sin takes place in the infamous chapter of Genesis 3. And from there onward, we see the corruption of mankind due to sin. And it started with Cain murdering his brother Abel, And what we see is this ripple effect of sin through the line of Adam that extends all the way through every person that's born to the point that we get to Genesis 6, 5, and God's word says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Whoa. Only Noah found favor in God's sight. Noah found favor because he had faith in God and he walked 
with God. And we know this story well. Um, God caused it to rain for 40 days and 40 nights, but he spared Noah and his family. I've shared this before in past sermons. One of the first people I'm going to thank when I get to heaven is Noah. And we should, right? Because he walked with God and he had faith. Yet we also learn that even post-flood in Genesis 8.21 that the same description of mankind's condition remained. And that is why we see in the rest of the law and prophets a negative anthropology reflecting that man is not good. Popular examples from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 which say, there is none righteous, there is no one who does good, not even one, which the Apostle Paul collected and brought together to share again in Romans chapter 3, right? And he even included um, some, uh, some quotes from Old Testament prophets. And then we have the infamous verse recorded in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And then it finishes with a question. I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that it the question that it asks at the end, who can understand it? Just this week, there was a story on the news that made national headlines. You may have seen it. It involved four teenagers in the the city of Chicago who were arrested because they abducted and tortured and abused Um, a a teenage boy who was mentally disabled. And worse yet, they live-streamed it for about 30 minutes on Facebook. And it was a horrific crime, no doubt. Horrific crime. Yet, what was equally disheartening to me was listening to the news analysts talk to psychologists and social workers about how such a crime like this could even happen. They, they questioned every detail. They, they talked about their parents and who was raising them at home and the impact that they were having on their lives. They talked about uh, their teachers and their peers and the social influences at school that were possibly having a bearing on them. They even talked about uh, past abuses that these teens might have been subjected to that would encourage them to abuse another person this way. Yet no one ever addressed the spiritual problem connected to the wicked and depraved hearts living inside these teens. If they truly understood the depravity of man, they would recognize that this crime, along with all crimes against humanity, all corrupt human behavior, It all shares the same cursed bloodline. There is no such thing as natural human goodness. The Apostle Paul reached this conclusion in Romans 7, 18, when he wrote, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. And so how is it that when you ask so many people in this world if they're a good person, their default answer is what? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. No? Pretty good, pretty good dude. I'm not as bad. And then they start looking to their left and start looking to their right. 
Why is it that psychologists and secular counselors and the unbelieving world adamantly believe that mankind is inherently good when God's word clearly, clearly says otherwise? The short answer is due to the consequence of unbelief and the sin of pride. 1 Corinthians 2.14, very important verse, confirms, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You want to answer the question that Jeremiah 17.9 answers? Who, who can understand this? You need 1 Corinthians 2.14. There, there's the connection right there. You connect those two dots. Only those who have spiritual understanding and eyes to see. And I was thinking about this, and I began to just go through. I was like, why is it that they think that mankind is inherently good? And, and I, I was tempted, I really was, to chase this rabbit right in the middle of the sermon and get away from the text. And then I said, you know what? We have equipping hours that are starting back up, and I'm going to have the opportunity to teach an equipping hour now and then too. And the first equipping hour that I hope to teach, I'm going to spend some time on this. So we, we have that to look forward to. But for now, we need to see that the rich young ruler has a totally skewed view of man. And therefore, Jesus responds the way that he does in verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Our Lord's response here, it serves a dual purpose. First, it lets us know that the man doesn't understand who Jesus Christ is. Okay? He doesn't see him for who he is. And second, it points him vertical to God's standard of good, which is absolute. A standard that is not comparable nor obtainable by human subjective standards. One commentator writes, Jesus calls him to sober reflection. What does the epithet good mean? It belongs to God who is good, and it should not be used without thinking or as a flippant gesture of praise. Or as Calvin understands Jesus' reply, it is as if he said, you falsely call me a good master unless you acknowledge that I have come from God. In other words, Jesus is saying, before you address me with such a title, you had better think soberly about what the implications are and especially what they are for you. End quote. And this is the first vital lesson of the gospel. Only God is truly good. And a person must acknowledge this spiritual truth to inherit eternal life. God's standard of good is absolute. It's an absolute standard that is upheld by the very law and inerrancy of the scripture that describes him. Man cannot pull God down to his standard of good, nor is man capable of pulling himself up to God's standard of good. John MacArthur adds this, no one is good except God alone. That makes good absolute, not relative. There are relative degrees of bad. You're not as bad as everybody else. I'm not as bad as everybody else. But none of us is good. Only God is good. That is a smashing blow for a legalist. The issue here is to challenge the sinner's sense of goodness. Before you can talk about the gospel, before you can talk about salvation, before you can talk about the kingdom and eternal life and working the works of God, people must understand that they are not good 
and that takes all the works out of it, end quote. And all God's people, we would say amen. We would applaud this. And this is exactly why Jesus opts to use God's law starting in verse 19. God's law exalts and God's law exposes. What do I mean by that? First, God's law exalts. It exalts the very nature and character of who God is. He is absolutely and totally good. We could say perfectly good in every way along with all his other attributes. And people on the other side of the law are, are exposed by it. It lets us see the nature of who we are, that we're not good, and that we're not perfect by any means. Even the definition of sin, and you guys have heard this before, is what? Missing the mark. And there's a bullseye there that represents perfection and supreme goodness and being right on point. And that's not just with one action, but that's with every thought, every deed, everything that you could ever do. And sin is missing the mark of perfection. That's it. The second vital lesson from uh, Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler so that a person understands what is necessary to inherit eternal life is to confess that you are a lawbreaker. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder. And real quick, this guy is a ruler, most likely a synagogue official. So he would have been very acquainted with the law. So Jesus is, is sharing. And when he says, you know, he's not, he's not being presumptuous here. He's more than likely very familiar and any Jew would have been and had the, the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, memorized uh, forward and backwards. And so he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And here our Lord further directs the rich young ruler's thoughts to God by calling his attention to the second table of the Ten Commandments. There's a first and second table. It's the, the, the English way to say, to put the, the spin on tablets, right? And they make a reference to them as the table of the Ten Commandments. The, the first four involved how a person would relate to God. And the final six, or the second table, talks about how a person relates with other people. And if you were to look up these commandments individually, you would notice that they are listed out of order. Jesus starts with commandments 6, 7, 8, and 9, and then he finishes with commandments 5 and what appears to be 10. And again, this, this is probably for emphasis. Commentators give special attention to the command, do not defraud, which most agree reflects the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. Fraud is a common example of covetousness. When we see um, people with money, they can become greedy, right? And so they commit fraud because they want more money and they covet, okay? And so it makes sense that Jesus included this because this man was very rich, says Luke in the parallel account in Luke 18, 23. And by the way, no one is ever able to keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, 
And so Jesus is sharing them. He's holding up a mirror of God's law for this man to look into so that he can see that he is a sinner. And this is what the letter of the law is intended to do. When the Apostle Paul was writing Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10, he shared the, the, the purpose of the law. And you can turn there, or I'm going to read it, but uh, you're welcome if you want to see it firsthand. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10 says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a, religious, a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. As I mentioned earlier, the law exposes. And it exposes you and I for who we are, and it helps you and I see our need for a Savior. And thus, the Apostle Paul also includes an important verse in Galatians 3.24 that says, Therefore the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. And all the rich young ruler needed to do was confess that he was a lawbreaker and then he could see his need for the Savior whom he is standing face to face with. Instead, look what happens in verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And all God's people said, What? <laughs> this is outrageous. This is an outrageous claim. John MacArthur says, The man is living in a delusion. He understands the surface of the law, but not the depth of the law, because the law goes much deeper than the surface. And then he shares the emphasis that Jesus put on uh, God's people in the, sermon of the, in the Sermon of the Mount, saying, you have heard it said, you have been taught. But I say, and then he went on to say, you've been taught that uh, if you don't murder, then you're okay. But I say that if you, have, if you look at somebody with hatred in your heart, excuse me, you're a murderer. You've been taught that if you don't commit adultery, then you are okay. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman to lust after her in your heart, you've committed adultery. Pastor John concludes by saying, this man didn't understand the depth of the law. If he understood the depth of the law, he would know that he had hatred, that lustful thoughts were a part of his life, that desiring to steal, covetousness, lies, dishonor to his parents were a part of the fabric of his wretched heart. He had broken the law. He was a lawbreaker, and as a lawbreaker, he was worthy of death, and that's what the law is supposed to do, kill you, sentence you to death, and divine judgment, end quote. Spoken like only John MacArthur can speak it. He does. He's just clear and to the point. That is the purpose of the law. Instead, the rich young ruler says, I've kept all these from my youth. What's he saying? In the end, in essence, I'm good. That's exactly right. I'm good. I'm not a lawbreaker. I'm a good person morally. 
I'm an upstanding citizen. I'm young. I'm rich. I have position and influence in society. But I just want to add eternal life into the equation because it seems like, I don't know, it just seems like there's something missing. So what can I just add to to my goodness to make sure that I can obtain eternal life? And this is where many people in our world, and no doubt many people within the church are at too, isn't it? They look to their left and they look to their right and they think, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. In fact, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good compared to most. As one pastor shares, they take an external superficial inventory of their lives and they think they are all right. They say, I don't beat my wife. I don't abuse my children. I don't run around. I don't drink. I provide for my family. I'm a pretty good person. And after all, compared to some people, well, I'm almost a saint. And you know what's wrong with that? The problem with people and their relationship with God is not what they are outwardly, it's what they are inwardly. The heart of the problem is that the heart is the problem. Man is a sinner. And then he makes reference to Romans 3, uh, 10 through 12. There are none righteous, no, not one. And he concludes with these thoughts about the rich young ruler. He can clean up the outside all he wants to, but he's still a sinner. You can wash a pig, perfume him, put a ribbon around his neck, and he looks clean. But you turn him loose, and he'll head straight to the mire. Why? He's a pig, and that's what pigs do. You can take a corpse and comb its hair, put makeup on it, perfume it, and it looks pretty good. But it will still rot and decay. Why? It is a corpse, and that's what corpses do. A sinner may turn over a new leaf and look good outwardly, He may be a moral, clean, hardworking person, but he is still a sinner at heart and he needs a savior. That is what Jesus wanted this young man to know and that is what he wants you to know as well, end quote. And that's the emphasis on the gospel. The lesson is clear from the Lord. If you want to obtain eternal life, you must confess that you are a lawbreaker. It is who you and I are by nature, and never changes unless, of course, God gives us a new heart and a new nature, which he does for the person who comes and confesses. Only God is good and confesses that they are also a lawbreaker. Well, there's a a third uh, and final lesson that a person must understand to inherit eternal life, and it's this. Surrender your allegiance to this world and follow Christ. Now, I want you to notice something here as it relates to our Lord's response. I think most of us in our evangelism efforts, if we were to encounter someone who would be this delusional about their goodness, that it could be awfully tempting for us to get frustrated with them. Well, I want you to look at our Lord's response in verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. Let's breathe that in for a moment. Because every believer in this church, there's a moment in time where Jesus set his eyes on your heart and he looked into your soul and he felt a love for you. And so Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, one thing you lack 
Go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And the love here Jesus feels here, it refers to something more than an embrace or a personal affection. It refers to genuine compassion based on need, not on merit. It is a grace-infused love. And rather than dispute with a man about whether or not the, he kept or didn't keep the law, Jesus lovingly raises the bar and calls out the idol of his heart. Jesus asked the man to surrender his allegiance to serving himself and his wealth and to come follow him. Now it's important also to see what else is taking place here. The command to sell everything and give to the poor isn't to be universally universalized and applied to every believer. While at the same time, it shouldn't be ignored either. Okay, So we have to, we have to see that. It, per, it pertains to the need of the person. What might be an idol for one person might be different for another. Some people may have to give up their vocation. Some people may have to give up a lifestyle. Some people may have to give up a sinful passion or a relationship to follow Christ. It's not always necessary money, and that's why you'll notice our, our first point is, is what it is. Surrender your allegiance to the world. To, to self and the world. I left self out, but you could include that if you're a note taker. To self and the world, not necessarily to wealth. Money is not the problem. Rather, it's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil, just as Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. This is not a call to poverty, but to discipleship, which takes many forms. The gospel calls a person to forsake any and all idols of the heart. And an idol can be defined as anything you love, serve, or worship more than God or along with God. And there's some application for you. You can just spend some time just reflecting on, on that definition alone. Is there anything that I love more than God? Is there anything that I serve more than God? And it takes some discernment with that one right there, right? Because we are called to service, right? And we're serving God by serving and fulfilling our ministry roles within our marriage, within our family, right? But is there something outside of the ministry realm that I am serving more than God? Is there anything that I'm worshiping or idolizing more than God? The sky's the limit on application as it relates. And, and it's really a great way to, to look into the recesses of your own heart and, and consider those things. And, um, you know, I, I would share this just even as it relates to dating couples. Um, you, you have to be cautious that you don't allow the person to whom you're dating to become an idol in, in your life, right? And if, if both people are focused on God, then that is what's going to determine his will and he'll determine whether it's his will for you to be drawn together or not, right? The same, too, with young parents or those uh, with children, you know? We do everything 
And our love and our attention and our focus is with our children. And before you know it, we don't have any devotion. We don't have any time with the Lord. Our prayer and, you know, we, 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 it, it minimizes and potentially our children could be turned into idols. You get the point. Jesus isn't implying that salvation is earned either by giving away material possessions. Rather, he's placing his finger on the root of this man's problem. The rich young ruler loved his money more than he wanted a relationship with God. He wasn't willing to surrender his allegiance to himself or his wealth. And how do we know? Verse 22 confirms it. It says, But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property, many estates. He went away. He was gloomy, and he was downcast. Why? Because a fruit of the Spirit and following Jesus Christ in obedience yields what? It produces joy. And disobedience and rejecting the will of God, it will cause the soul to go into a downcast state. It will leave it in a downcast state. So what is our primary takeaway? Be faithful to preach the true biblical gospel and all that it demands. Notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't ask him to pray a prayer. He didn't ask him to um, sign a commitment card or to, 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 to come on an altar call. Come as you are and stay as you are. That's not what Jesus taught, as we've seen clearly in the passage. He encouraged him to calculate the cost and to consider what the allegiance of his heart was surrendered to. And how did he do it? Jesus challenged him to recognize that only God is good. He challenged him with the law so that he would confess that he was a lawbreaker. And lastly, our Lord challenged him to surrender his allegiance to the world and to follow him. And you want to talk about sharing the gospel in an effective measure, right? You can just take the outline, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you can go down the line with somebody and, and clarify these three points with them. Only God is good. You're a lawbreaker, my friend, right? And you need to surrender your allegiance to this world and to your own life and come and follow him. Commit your life to him. Well, to close our time, I want to reflect on the lyrics of a song that really encapsulate what a person must do to inherit eternal life. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow, worldly pleasures all forsaken. Take me, Jesus, take me now. I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit, truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender, Lord I give myself to thee. 
Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessings fall on me. All to Jesus I surrender. Now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation. Glory, glory to his name. Amen, church. Amen. Pray with me. Gracious God, we bow our heads, rejoicing in you, thanking you for Jesus Christ and his servant example as we seek to follow him and honor him with our lives. We praise you for his discipleship of us this morning, just even reminding us how we can effectively share the gospel with those that don't know you. And I pray, Father, that if there's someone here this morning that the weight of your word would convict their hearts. Perhaps they've been raised in the church. Perhaps they have heard the, the gospel before, but they've never understood that only you are good. They've never understood their depravity, that it's total. And there's no way to ever clean yourself up good enough to come to Christ, but we come confessing that we're sinners through and through. That your law has been a mirror that has allowed us to see that we're lawbreakers. Father, would you lead them to a place that they would surrender? That their allegiance to your lordship and your authority in their life would be made real. That they could begin to follow you and walk with you and glorify you as a result. You don't save us to keep us the same. You take us, you clean us, and you sanctify us so that we can be used for your purposes. And I pray, Father, as it relates to these lessons that we've seen, we know as believers that these are not just one-time professions that we make, but this is a daily profession that we make, that only you are good, that we are lawbreakers, and yet that we can come to you because grace covers all of our sin, and that we can glorify you as we surrender our allegiance to self and this world, and that we follow you. Would you help us as a church family to do that in incredible measure, not only this day, but tomorrow and all the days of 2017 that are ahead? We thank you again for this time. We pray all this in Christ's name.